For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to this episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. If this is your first time, I am so grateful for you joining me here so you can learn as much as possible about the medical cannabis world. And if you have been a listener for the last year, welcome to you as well. I am so grateful for you and your continued commitment to your journey with medical cannabis. And you may have noticed that I took a couple months off from releasing any episodes. I moved across the country from Austin, Texas to Cleveland, Ohio, back to where I grew up, back to the place that I left 18 years ago for California, where my cannabis journey began. And it all comes back here to Ohio, where they have a burgeoning and growing and strong medical cannabis community and industry here. So if you are from Ohio or from Cleveland, please reach out to me, Matthew at edgeofcannabismedicine.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get your insights as to what's going on here in Ohio so I can better serve this community while I'm here and not on the air. But while I am on the air, I want to introduce you to this week's guest, Dr. Michelle Ross. It was such a pleasure speaking to her. She has such a wealth of knowledge in so many different areas. She is truly passionate about plant medicine and her journey to healing has been outrageous in some ways. She has dealt with so many different chronic issues, and a lot of them stem from the fact that she is a neurobiologist and doing things in the lab may have contributed to many of her health problems. But she takes you on the journey through the healing process that she used with plant medicines, cannabis definitely, and also Kratom, which I got a crash course on from her and didn't know much about. So please Without further ado, enjoy this episode with Dr. Michelle Ross. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Michelle Ross. Dr. Ross is a neuroscientist with fibromyalgia who helps women heal chronic pain with cannabis, mushrooms, and other botanicals. She has authored five books, including Vitamin Weed and CBD Oil for Health, as the creator of numerous online courses, including the first certification on cannabis and motherhood, she has educated thousands of patients, clinicians, and cannabis industry professionals around the world on plant medicine. Dr. Michelle Ross is the founder of Fibro University and the CEO of Infused Partners. She has served on many medical advisory boards of many companies in the cannabis and wellness space, including Veraheal. She holds a PhD in neuroscience, as well as an executive MBA. 
Dr. Ross is known for breaking boundaries as the first scientist to star in a reality television series in the world. That's pretty fun. She finished fourth place on the hit CBS series Big Brother 11, and she has been featured on the Today Show, The Doctors, Vice, and many other media outlets, and now lives in Las Vegas. Dr. Ross, I'm so grateful to finally get you on this show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, your podcast is amazing, and I can't wait to share all of my knowledge in plant medicine. Um, of course, you know, all of my peers, we're all working in this industry together and learning and discovering new things about these amazing plants that have existed, you know, um, as indigenous medicine in many cases for, for many, many centuries, and we're only rediscovering them now, right? It's true. We think we discovered things, but we haven't. We're just a, part of a long line of human history. <laughs> Yes. Well, let's take a dive into your history. It's very fascinating what you've been through in order to get to this point. So if you wouldn't mind sharing how you came from neuroscience all the way into cannabis. Yes. Well, I've had one of the most, I think, crazy, maybe even circular uh, career uh, trajectories um, out of most of the scientists. As I always say, I'm like, not your average scientist, right? Uh, most scientists don't go from the lab to, say, reality TV to uh, becoming a, a drug researcher, right? Um, so in my career, you know, um, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. In fact, when I was a little girl, when I was five, I was like, I'm going to, you know, research all about drugs. I actually grew up in a neighborhood where there was a lot of drug users. Um, there was people dealing drugs in my neighborhood. And so I was just a really like a smart little kid. I wanted to be a doctor and help everyone with drug addiction. Uh, so I was very much sort of, I should have been on the other side of things like, you know, on the government side, like don't do drugs, they're bad, you know, and that's actually uh, where I started my career. I started as a drug addiction neuroscientist. Um, I got my PhD in Dallas. I was studying drugs, but it was just funny because my very first paper that was assigned to me was about brain cell growth and cannabis and other you know, synthetic cannabinoids and things like that. And of course, to my surprise, going, okay, cannabis is bad. Marijuana is bad. And finding out that it could, in fact, grow brain cells was a little shocking to my system. Um, and of course, that was one of the many things I started learning about drugs and their potential for actually healing the brain, um, you know, everything from ibogaine uh, to magic mushrooms on down, anything that like really supports either the endocannabinoid system or the serotonin system seems to be good for the brain um, and less negative. And so as I studied, you know, cocaine, heroin, some of the harder drugs that do have a lot of negative consequences to the brain, I also saw that there was these plant medicines that had a lot of potential. Um, of course, the government doesn't like to study or fund those, you know, at least back in the day. Um, you know, I started my career off, goodness, um, I got my PhD back in 2008. So this was before psychedelics were cool and everything. Uh, so uh, there was still a lot of stigma, especially in certain parts of the country, like, for example, Texas, where I was doing my PhD. Uh, cannabis is still illegal in Texas. So um, you know, pro-cannabis research, pro-psychedelics research was not really uh, wanted down there. Um, so I moved to California. I did my postdoc, um, some of my postdoc research at Caltech. Um, and it was sort of funny. I sort of got discovered by reality TV there like two months. Uh, it, it, was, it was a very interesting move. I never thought I'd be on TV, um, but I was the first scientist on TV. So I ended up leaving academia, which actually opened me up uh, to a lot of different um, possibilities. I worked in mainstream supplement world, like learning about health supplements and things like that, how to market them, which was really helpful in my career of learning how to 
safely market, say CBD and these other things that once they went from the vice market to the legal market, like they have to follow marketing rules and like, you know, consumer safety and things like that. So I learned a lot of things that were very helpful in transitioning um, the vice world to uh, the, you know, consumer supplement world. Um, so I worked in mainstream world and then I sort of got drawn back into the science world education. Um, I built the, one of the first nonprofits uh, for cannabis and women's health. And there's a reason like how I got back into cannabis, right? I was in the straight world, like completely straight world. Um, and uh, it turned out that I started having all these different health problems. Uh, and perhaps it was because of my exposure to a lot of toxic chemicals as a research scientist. I was literally like putting my arms into like vats of formaldehyde and things like that to like, you know, like you have to get brains as a researcher, right? Like there's a whole process that's pretty gruesome, but like, let's just say there's a lot of inhalation of really toxic chemicals. And so like, I pretty much probably embalmed myself at some point. <laughs> like, um, I, and a lot of, um, you know, other, um, uh, members of the labs that I worked in also sort of getting sort of like neurological conditions or cancer or things like that. So like, it's not the safest job being a scientist or a brain scientist, the least. Um, and so I started getting a lot of different nerve symptoms and things like that. It took a couple of years to figure out. I ended up having a fibromyalgia um, and also some nerve damage and things like that, blood clots, like a whole bunch of, of chronic health problems. But um, you know, doctors basically uh, weren't very helpful. You know, they prescribe you the morphine, the this, so that you end up with like 20 medications, you're out of it, you can't work, nothing is better. <laughs> just like, it's, it's sort of really horrible life. And uh, a lot of times when doctors don't know how to treat you, um, or even if they do have the diagnosis, right, it sort of leads to this spiraling of, okay, you are you were healthy. Now you have a diagnosis. Now you're supposed to be sick and sort of stay sick and it gets worse, right? Like it never gets better. And so you're like, oh yeah, you need to like take off from work. You can't work anymore. You're a sick person now, you know, go on disability things like that. So for me as a scientist, I wasn't going to be like, yeah, give me all the drugs and I'm just going to sit there like on my iPhone and play Candy Crush all day. Like that's not, that's not my life, you know, uh, that's not what I want for myself. And so um, I hadn't really consumed cannabis and consumed some of these other uh, plant substances that I knew so much about. Um, and I started experimenting with them on myself. Um, and it was sort of crazy to see how the pharmaceuticals had all these side effects and they were just awful, um, you know, side effects like gaining, say, 50 pounds in two months and things like that. Whereas cannabis, um, you know, when you find the right form of it, you know, for some people it's smoking, some people's eating, some people it's a mix and things like that. There's all sorts of different ways to use it. Um, but for me, I found that the pain management was really, really helpful. Uh, its ability to help me sleep, all these things. Um, I didn't need to be on opioids. I didn't need to be on antidepressants. I didn't need to be on the 20 different medications they had given me. Um, I was able to actually come off of all these medications um, with cannabis um, at first and then sort of it's interesting because cannabis is like the gateway drug to other plant medicines. Um, even if you know about them, it's still funny because it's just like, there's such a difference between knowing about something and using it. Right. And so I used cannabis, but I still, you know, I went from being in a wheelchair to, you know, being in a walker to being able to walk like by myself and everything like else like that. Like I had a lot, a lot of health problems. Um, so I was able to get back to like sort of normalcy where I was, sort of functioning, but I still wasn't functioning 100% when it came to like being sharp as a scientist, right? Like I'm used to being the smartest person in the room most of the time, right? Used to writing books really fast. My brain was just stuck. It was like in this brain fog mode. And that's really, um, 
you know, a symptom of fibromyalgia, which is chronic pain syndrome. Um, it's also a symptom of traumatic brain injury, which I've um, unfortunately also had. So my brain wasn't running at 100%, but my body finally was like, you know, catching up. And so for me, cannabis didn't cure that part of it, you know. Uh, and so I had to use some of these other plant medicines. So I explored, you know, LSD, I explored magic mushrooms. Um, I really do credit both of those substances to rewiring my brain and getting me back to where, oh my goodness, I can go write a book now in a month, you know, instead of taking five years to do it, you know, something like that. Um, I was able to go and get my MBA after having a traumatic brain injury. Um, I was able to do so many different things. And so to me, I realized that there was so much power in not just sticking to say one plant medicine, but using all these different plant medicines together to be able to really treat different symptoms of really complex diseases and knowing that not there's really so many different things that are happening with a patient with chronic illness. Most patients don't have one. Like once you get one, you get them all. Like they're, they're like collector's <laughs> items, really. Uh, it, it's horrible. Even in the United States, most people have like two to three illnesses. And so I think that using all these different plant substances together was really key for healing me. And it was key for me in understanding how to help other people. And so from there, I started, you know, nonprofits, for-profit companies. I've been doing health coaching, writing books, so many things, but it was really my illness that led to me, you know, coming out of like, sort of like the shadows of, you know, knowing about all this plant medicine and really being like the biggest advocate ever for this, because it, you know, it really is something that saved my life. And I think that's such an important point because as the cannabis industry and the whole world around cannabis keeps growing, the stigma is slowly being released more and more and more. And scientists and researchers and educators like yourself, it's no longer taboo to say, I'm a cannabis user. It really worked for me. And I'm still a scientist. I'm still helping people. Whereas I think we're seeing at the with psychedelic research, it's still at such a early, early stage and still very taboo. And a lot of the scientists that are working on that, they have to hide their psychedelic use because it's like, oh, you're going to be biased in your opinions and your research if you do any of this. And so it's really cool to see someone like you being honest, moving forward and saying, this really works. N of one, it's proof for me. It can be for you. Let me help you out. So what has that journey been like for you as a consultant and a coach for these plant medicines? Well, you know, just, just to talk a little bit about that stigma, um, the stigma has never gone away. It was definitely not an easy path for me, even my mentor in um, my university where I got my PhD, it was like, you're a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, we get funding from the government to help people get off drugs like cannabis. You are a drug dealer. And, um, you know, there's some there's been so much pushback, you know, um, over the years. And it's only recently where people are going, oh, goodness, maybe CBD is for something else besides just children with epilepsy. Maybe it has some potential. Oh, goodness, maybe THC is useful. Um, but, you know, for the last 15 years, I was labeled as sort of a drug dealer, as sort of, you know, this um, somebody who was using, say, maybe their degree for something bad, you know, and finally people are coming around. So I would say that plant medicine, it's sort of funny um, because I think the psychedelics, uh, because of their um, the clinical research around them um, has been, I think, much more thorough because of less regu regulation around clinical research um, on, on psychedelics and there's cannabis 
that there's been more acceptance about its utility and therapy and things like that because they've done the clinical trials. Cannabis was, as a Schedule One drug, so hard to do research studies around that there were still people saying, okay, it's not good. We can't say it's for this or for that or for anything. So I would say that there, it's almost like sometimes comparing apples and oranges to psychedelics versus like the cannabis world. And, you know, we'll get to Kratom. Kratom is like even more highly stigmatized. Um, it's just, it's ridiculous. But um, uh, let's see. So to get to your point, I want to make sure I answered your question. I think sure. I, I veered a little bit there. Let's go back. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I'm just gonna comment on that too. We'll just keep going how this goes. Uh, fascinating that even your mentor would consider you a drug dealer for being a proponent of cannabis, whereas most prescribing physicians, that's what they are. They're drug dealers. They're, if you're prescribing opioids to pers a person, you're one of the worst drug dealers on the planet as far as I'm concerned. And you're killing more people than cannabis ever has and ever will because it's exactly zero people that have overdosed from cannabis. So yeah, it, it, amazing. So keep doing what you're doing. And my question was about the transition from patient to coach and, and what was that like for you? And what, how do you, how was your career flourishing in that regard? Sure. Um, so in the beginning, it was a little uncertain about how to take my knowledge of plant medicine and do that legally, right? Because I'm a PhD. So I have a doctorate in neuroscience. I'm not a licensed physician or anything like that. And you have to be really careful about practicing medicine. And so the way that you do that is through health coaching, right? Um, and so I give what I consider more of like harm reduction consults where we're teaching people how to use these um, plants safely, how to dose, um, what the potential drug interactions might be and things like that. Um, and in the beginning, there wasn't really many people in this field. I actually was one of the first people to create education for different platforms like the Holistic Cannabis Institute. Um, I created the first cannabis and motherhood uh, training out there because there was a lot of misinformation. So even if you wanted to get into this, if you were a health coach that wanted to get into cannabis, there wasn't a lot of good information. And if you were in cannabis, but you wanted to coach people, but had no like training on how to do this correctly, because you can't just be like, okay, I smoke weed. I'm going to tell everyone about it. Like there's, you know, like there's sort of rules in helping people transform their health and also dealing with crisis management and things like that. Because most patients, you know, that are in chronic pain also have some other issues, whether it's anxiety, stress, things like that. Um, so you have to have some training. You have to have like the malpractice, like you have to have all these different things in place. And so really, um, you know, navigating this, coming up with good frameworks, um, you know, creating the technology platforms where, you know, people could find you easily and talk about this. And it was legal in the beginning. It was so hard because, uh, you know, it, doing telemedicine or telehealth for cannabis was basically shut down by like every payment processor. So you, it might as well have been like you were selling weed if you were talking about cannabis. And to this day, like Wells Fargo says, if you're educating people about cannabis, you're breaking in the rules. Stripe will not allow you to do payments or anything like that. I've been banned for Stripe for seven years for my book, Vitamin Weed, and for coaching. Um, and it's so ridiculous because, you know, how are you supposed to help people use the substance that's legal in over, you know, 33 states, um, and yet you can't take payment online for it? It's been sort of sort of weird. Over the years, some of these um, restrictions has eased up and things like that. But it's sort of funny. It's much more easier as a new coach coming in because they haven't been banned or things like that. Like I can't be, be unbanned as one of the like the OG people in this field. There's other people who are like, oh, I have no problem. I take payments. I do this and that. Or like, we paved the way for you guys. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it's been really interesting. My 
my joy, you know, having done some of the hard work around this and, you know, there's lots of tech stuff behind this, uh, you know, obviously there's so many interesting and obstacles when it comes to marketing like you can't Facebook market and things like that. Um, but navigating these challenges, um, helping other coaches, uh, really understand how to get their voice out. Um, I think that the strength in, in cannabis coaching and plant medicine coaching is now isn't so much, hey, I'm a plant medicine coach. It really should be, okay, what is the specific like health symptom or condition that you are really confident in helping, right? Like I founded Fibro, Fibro University because I have fibromyalgia. I can't talk today. Fibromyalgia primarily. Um, and um, for me, that was my area of expertise, chronic pain, fibromyalgia. You know, there's a thousand other symptoms out there, but really when you think about it, cannabis is just one of the tools, right? You know, CBD is one of the tools. Mushroom is one of the tools. I really think that people should focus on serving a specific niche like population um, so that they can really help them um, rather than saying, okay, I'm going to treat epilepsy patients and this patients and all those things, you know, no one's an expert in everything. And again, when you're not a medical professional, it's different. I think if you're a nurse, I think you can handle most of these things, but most of the people that are in the cannabis coaching uh, industry are not nurses, they're not doctors and things like that. And so I try to help people say, hey, stay in your lane, but also if you really focus on one group, you're going to be able to serve them really, really, really well. And so now there are cannabis coaches that specialize, say, in Lyme disease or fibromyalgia or, you know, all these different types of things. Um, and it's really exciting. Um, but, you know, we all start from the same part where, okay, how do how do I reach my ideal client? How do I charge them for this? How do I stay on top of laws and these things? Um, and I do a lot of like one-on-one -on -one coachings and mo uh, masterminds and things like that um, with a lot of coaches. Um, I help find coaches and like for different platforms out there. So it's been interesting. It's like when I started, you know, I sort of had to like make my space at the table. Like there wasn't a cannabis coaching industry. And now um, it's nice because it's so rapidly growing. Um, and there's so many people that are now open to this new form of medicine. So it's been an exploding industry. It's been really fun. Um, what I do changes like seriously every year as like the different needs of the industry change. And of course things become more and more legal. Like I'm sure after things become federally legal, there's going to be so many changes, you know, what, what can you do? What kind of research do you need to back things up? Um, uh, you know, uh, do you need to get a licensure, uh, licensing now that, you you know, cannabis is legal, um, you know, on the federal level. So I'm excited for, for what's happening. I'm excited for the future. Um, and I, I really do love my job. Cool. Well, I'm going to take you back in time real quick. So I'm very curious about this neurogenesis process and cannabis has such a stigma. It's like, oh, it kills your brain cells. It makes you dumb all this stuff like that. And it's like, well... You actually have some lab proof that that's not the case. Would you mind talking about that? Sure. Uh, so we actually do grow new brain cells in our brain. Um, that was actually uh, something that was uh, not a known process, you know, back in the 80s, I think was when they first discovered it and sort of became mainstream by the late 90s. Uh, and so I finished my PhD back in 2008. And I really looked at what the role of the, these newborn cells were, right? It's not enough to say, okay, we have new brain cells. Well, where are they born? What do they do? Like, uh, what happens? You know, how do you grow them? How do you kill them? <laughs> what happens when you kill them? All those kind of things. So um, these newborn cells um, are only found in certain areas of the adult brain. And so one of the areas where they're found is this tiny little, like, 
layer of uh, the brain called the hippocampus and in a very specific region called the dentate gyrus. And so these newborn cells are really important for uh, learning and memory, also mood regulation, things like that. Um, so it's interesting because certain treatments will grow these brain cells. So they're all treatments that we sort of consider healthy. So like exercise will grow new brain cells, um, you know, uh, antidepressants will, um, which I, I don't really consider healthy, but you know, one of the ways that we think that it works is, is by uh, promoting the serotonin system. So we know that drugs that promote the serotonin system seem to increase neurogenesis. And so that's why I think like magic mushrooms uh, do, MDMA also does um, to some extent, uh, things that uh, stimulate the endocannabinoid system, which is of course the neurotransmitter system that uh, cannabis works on, um, also increases neurogenesis um, in that area. And so we do know that these newborn cells, um, you know, they transform and they have different receptors on them as uh, they go through sort of like their their baby to teenage years to adult full grown, you know, brain cell or neuron. Um, but we do know that they are responsive to different um, drug stimuli. And so the endocannabinoid system is really important. Uh, so is the serotonin system and other systems. We're still learning about these brain cells. It's been, you know, up until, you know, very recently, it was hard to study them, right? Um, the brain, you can't really take apart the human brain, right? You can study the rodent brain, the mouse brain, but the human brain, it's really hard um, sometimes to understand, okay, is something that's happening in a mouse, is it really happening in the human and things like that? Is this clinically significant? Um, but we do know that things that kill brain, uh, newborn brain cells, like alcohol kills them. Um, and there's some other things like stress is not good uh, for the brain cells and things like that. And so things that make your brain happy promote uh, new uh, new brain cell growth or neurogenesis. And so, um, you know, knowing that cannabis helps um, and specifically there are different cannabinoids in uh, cannabis and they all do have slightly different impacts on neurogenesis. We do know that CBD and CBG are a little bit, um, you know, more optimal for neurogenesis on THC. THC can be pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. So it could be like sort of neutral. So um, really when it comes down to it, it's like CBD is the winner for uh, neurogenesis for sure. When there's actually just a new a research study that shows that it's also good for uh, killing or uh, binding to amyloid protein um, and preventing Alzheimer's disease or treating it. And so we know that, you know, the, these newborn uh, cells are also altered in uh, in uh, brains of people that have Alzheimer's. So it's really interesting. I think that cannabinoids have a lot of potential for healing the brain, you know, boosting mood. Um, in my case, um, I studied uh, the role of neurogenesis in drug addiction. And so, you know, if there's ways to boost the levels of new brain cells, uh, you can also help reduce uh cravings for different drugs like stimulants and heroin, opioids and things like that. And so, you know, if what I'm saying here is, hey, say CBD or cannabinoids can help improve neurogenesis um, that should reduce cravings for drugs and alcohol. And that's actually something we see with cannabis, right? Um, we know that people that use cannabis tend to consume less alcohol. They tend to consume less hard drugs. And in fact, even in clinical trials, CBD is um, has already been published um, as being uh, efficacious in reducing heroin uh, cravings and also stimulant like cocaine and meth um, cravings. And so it's really cool that like some of the work I did, you know, like 10 years ago is now really playing out in a very clinical way 
where cannabis can really help our brain sort of rebalance, reset, and say no to the things that are harmful for us, right? Um, I think that our brain knows best. And uh, when we feed it the right things, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are endocannabinoid deficient, which is something I talk about in my book, Vitamin Weed. But right, if you're stressed out, if you're not eating healthy, not sleeping right, you're not doing all the things, you're going to be prone to so many different um, risks. And one of the risks that you are really prone to when you're stressed out is um, alcohol and drug abuse. And so if you don't touch any of these, those things, nothing's going to happen. But if you're super stressed out and you're your brain is not balanced correctly and you start using alcohol and drugs, you're going to get addicted faster. You're going to have a harder time, you know, stopping um, voluntarily. And that's sort of the work that uh, I was involved in. And it's something that I really promote uh, because we can never say, hey, you know, life's going to be awesome. I'm never going to be stressed out. You know, I'm always going to eat healthy. It's like, no, all of us in the American world on our sad American diet, we're all vulnerable, uh, to stress, to addiction, uh, to unhealthy habits and things like that. And so I think that CBD and cannabis is sort of like a little insurance policy where it's like, keep your brain balanced a little so that you're able to be uh, more resistant to say some of the challenges that come up in your life. Certainly. And I've seen where CBD is also not only promoting neurogenesis, but neuroprotective as well. So you're getting the added bonus of creating new brain cells and then Kind of give them a nice little cushion to to be able to do their thing without any kind of harm around them. Absolutely. I mean, I really think that you know, again, the title of my book being Vitamin Weed, but I, I really do believe in like vitamin CBD. It's something that we should all be consuming if it's safe. You know, of course, there's some people that shouldn't take it because of medication interactions and things like that. But for the most part, it just it's such a anti-inflammatory uh, compound, antioxidant, and one of the things that people don't realize is that there is a government patent on uh, uh, cannabinoids as neuroprotectants. And CBD is actually a more potent antioxidant than, say, vitamin C or vitamin E. So in the brain, it's working very, very well. And we see that, you know, with Alzheimer's, right? Alzheimer's researchers have been searching for things to stop the progression of Alzheimer's for, I don't know, like the last 30, 40, 50 years. And they haven't really found anything that's like, um, you know, a silver bullet. And recently, they've just been so excited about CBD because they see its potential. And so, um, you know, I'm really excited that we might be moving into a world where some of these brain diseases, especially the diseases of aging, don't have to happen. Because we've now realized, okay, well, humans didn't, didn't used to live to this age, right? We weren't living till 70 and 80 back in the day, right? Like, there's a lot of different health um, advances that have helped us age, um, you know, to a longer age, but also like there comes, you know, other things with that. And one of the things that we know in rodents is that the cannabinoid receptors, actually the number of them in our brain reduce over time. And so that might contribute to dementia. That might contribute to why we see some of these, you know, cognitive function issues, uh, why we see Alzheimer's, right? And so if we're able to balance that by providing more CBD, by providing more activity at say the CB1 and CB2 receptors, we might have healthier brains. And so I think that, you know, maybe incorporation of CBD is like CBD is the new fish oil, right? Like, okay, fish oil, omega-3 is going to only do so much for our brain. But CBD, it seems not only is balancing, um, you know, activity in our brain, fighting inflammation, um, you know, it's an antioxidant, but like, there's also other things it's doing when you look at its activity on genes. 
CBD can actually turn on all these anti-cancer genes, um, neuroprotective genes. Like there's so much that's going on that's not happening with some of the other cannabinoids that's really, really, really powerful. And we're only just learning about it, you know, again, because the money wasn't in clinical research for CBD because it was actually considered a harmful potential drug of abuse for years. Um, and so now only now is it like, okay, this is actually probably a vitamin or a potential, you know, pharmaceutical and, in you know, in many cases for brain cancer and, and epilepsy, it's actually been approved as a pharmaceutical. Um, but, you know, there's so much potential. And I think that, you know, again, those same professors that were like, you're a drug dealer, like 10 years ago, are like now like, oh, can I get a grant for to study this? It's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. And CBD is so fascinating for so many things you can say. I mean, epigenetics, wow, that's super cool that it yep. participates in that process. But just as like a cannabinoid, as a phytocannabinoid in itself, that it's not limited to the endocannabinoid system, that it actually integrates with so many of our other systems. It's fascinating that way. Yes. You know, its ability to bind uh, to the serotonin receptors is really cool. That's one of the reasons why it's very helpful for people who are anxious, um, right? Where people say, okay, well, you need THC for this or that. And it's like, well, sometimes people with anxiety gain just take something with CBD with very little THC in it. So say that like a broad spectrum, um, a CBD oil, and they do find benefit for it because they need that activation of their serotonin receptors. And I think it's so important. Um, there's receptors like GPR 55 and things like that. Sometimes CBD isn't even working to activate receptors. Sometimes it's blocking the receptors and that's what's important. For example, um, you know, in the, the types of receptors where CBD will bind and they'll block, say, um, cancer cells from growing. So there's so much that's really interesting. Um, another one that's uh, really interesting is that CBD actually has some benefit, say for women um, with pelvic health issues, uh, pelvic pain issues. For example, there's a disease called endometriosis that I have and I've struggled with um, and one in 10 women have it. So this is like millions of women around the world have this very, very painful pelvic pain disease. Um, and it was found that uh, CBD uh, actually does activate those receptors and stops the spread of the disease, you know, the progression and things like that. And so it's funny because if you look in um, some of the pharmaceutical uh, patents and things like that, like Bayer, Bayer's a huge, huge uh, drug company, OTC drug company, right? They had a patent on using cannabinoids for different uh you know, chronic pain syndromes for years. And like, they never activated any of these patents. They never brought them to market because of the federal, um, you know, nature of, you know, cannabis and, and CBD products being illegal at the time. Right. And it's sort of interesting. It's like, we know the utility of the, these drugs, um, you know, making it federally illegal. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Like in 10 years, we might have so many different pharmaceuticals with CBD, with cannabis, with CBG, CBN, like all these different you know, mixtures out there for different things. You know, for me, um, I was really excited um, to see the potential of terpenes plus cannabinoids plus, you know, other um, different herbal, uh, you know, medicines and see how they have sort of like this entourage effect. Like, for example, if you're trying to treat fibromyalgia pain, you know, what's the best cannabinoids for it? If you're trying to treat pelvic pain, what's the best compounds for it? I think that straight, say, cannabis strains are probably you know, they have utility in them, but I think that there's, there's the possibility of making even better, like targeted formulations using 
you know, different components in an even stronger way. Um, there's just so much that's, that's like so exciting. And we're just like, you know, at the tip of the iceberg and learning about what we can do. But like in the last, goodness, three, four years, right? We've seen a lot of single cannabinoid combination and cannabinoid products. Like before there wasn't a CBG plus a CBD oil out there or something like that. And like, that's just the beginning. I think that there's going to be um, just a wave of just really, really amazing products. And in my experience, um, from working with patients, that's really where the healing is. You know, um, for example, some types of neuropathic pain respond really well to say low levels of CBD, THC plus CBN. You know, other or patients respond really well to just THC and no CBD at all. And um, I think that we're also going to find that it's not just one formulation for one, you know, condition. I think that everyone has a slightly different genetic makeup. We have different um, enzymes that break down uh, medications differently. Like some of us are fast metabolizers of CBD, some are slow metabolizers. Like it's really going to come down to sort of that personalized medicine. You know, how do we re respond best to the plant? What are the best cannabinoids for us? What are our deficiencies? Um, I think that some people have, you know, serotonin receptor dysfunction. Some people have cannabinoid receptor dysfunction. We know in fibromyalgia, uh, migraine, um, Crohn's disease, there's these diseases of endocannabinoid deficiency where we actually see mutations in either the genes that make up the receptors, genes that make up the endocannabinoids or the enzymes that make them or break them down. And people have this imbalance in the endocannabinoid system. And that's why cannabis actually really helps for these conditions. So it's like, it all comes down to genetics, you know, which plant is right for you? Is it kratom? Is it mushrooms? Is it cannabis? Which part of the cannabis plant is the best for you? Um, I think that, you know, we, we sort of strayed and, and went the wrong way when we made all these synthetic pharmaceuticals back in the day, because, you know, really we have all of these plant compounds out there that are just amazing. And, you know, in the cannabis plant itself, you know, there's over a hundred cannabinoids and then there's all these terpenes and then there's flavonoids. There's all these different compounds in there that have so many different functions in the human body. Just cannabis by itself is enough. Probably if you exploit it in the right way to probably treat almost every condition out there. So, you know, and then when you think about all these other helper plants from medicinal mushrooms, which have, you know, hundreds of compounds, psychedelic mushrooms, creating like all these different things. We have an opioid, we have a serotonin, you know, stimulant, we have the cannabinoid receptor, uh, you know, stimulants and, and blockades, you know, there's all these different tools to manipulate our neurotransmitter systems. And so I think that herbal medicine is really where we need to return to. And I think that harnessing sort of like, the ancient wisdom plus all this like new plant medicine plus genetics is going to be the sweet spot. And it just, for me, having seen, you know, the full spectrum of, you know, the harms of uh, pharmaceuticals personally, um, you know, as well as um, in the lab, the harms of some of these um, different medications are to seeing what the benefits of herbal medicine um, and plant medicine is. It's just been been really, really awesome. And so I'm, I'm just really just overexcited about this. Like I literally, I love waking up and like nerding out to whatever has been discovered every single day. Yeah, I don't blame you. Your excitement definitely seeps through even this computer screen. So that's fun for me. <laughs> and I'm sure it's fun for everybody who's going to listen to this too. And I, I completely agree with you. I think that there's a really strong possibility that 
looking at cannabis as a medicine can really change the entire paradigm of how we look at medicine because from a pharmaceutical perspective, it's based around one molecule. And this one molecule is going to help this one thing. And when we start looking at cannabis, it's like, oh, wow, because of what you're talking about, the entourage effect, the ensemble effect, whatever you want to call it, making these formulations from this natural botanical is going to change the way that we look at healing, that we look at medicine. And even the, I've been seeing the DNA test for the endocannabinoid system. So you can specifically target exactly what you're missing and deficient in. And actually that's my segue into talking about vitamin weed, because I want to hear more about these endocannabinoid deficiencies and what you've done to help your clients move through them. Sure. Um, you know, I do want to just start off with talking about the limitations out there. Um, there are genetic tests, you know, from 23andMe. There's uh, ones that specifically come from different cannabis companies now, too. Um, I would say that we're still, I think, 100% too early to say, okay, well, this this raw genetic data is going to tell you exactly what strain you need. Um, when it comes down to really is, yes, there might be some things in there that might say, hey, um, you might be more prone to say psychosis than someone else based on your dopamine genes or, you know, by something else that might uh, show up in your genetic code. But does that mean that if you have, uh, you know, if you're more prone to psychosis based on your scores and, uh, of this test, does that mean you can't use cannabis? No. Um, it's about using that information in a more positive way. Maybe that tells you you shouldn't use really high doses. Maybe it shows you you should use a little bit more CBD. Maybe it says, hey, uh, using an edible or using something else is like a more appropriate route for you. Um, I think the most important things from DNA tests really is about your enzyme, your liver enzymes. Um, and that's because the most important thing about cannabis is knowing how you metabolize it, right? Um, knowing how you metabolize other drugs um, that because most patients aren't just using cannabis, they're also on other things, uh, you know, whether it's like they're taking CBD and Xanax or something like that. Um, the uh, P450 enzymes are really important. So something like CYP3A4 is something that CBD uh, is a liver enzyme that uh, CBD can inhibit, but some people are fast metabolizers. Some people are slow. Um, there's a whole bunch of different liver enzymes, but it's so important when people look at that, they get like overwhelmed. There's a lot of information in these DNA tests. And I think the most important one is to say, okay, in the liver enzymes one, the CYP ones, like, okay, which ones are changed with you? Which are you fast metabolizer? Any of them? Because it's important. Like if you're a fast metabolizer of THC, like that means you're going to have to smoke a lot of joints all the time because your body's going through it really fast. Same with CBD. So it turns out I'm a fast metabolizer of CBD. So if I want to use it, it's like um, also caffeine. So it's like I have to drink a lot of coffee during the day because it just goes through my system. Uh, same with CBD. So when I first started like dosing CBD, I would take it like, oh, yeah, I just take it twice a day. No, it wore off after like an hour. So for me, using CBD is actually not that effective or cost effective, at least, because if I have to dose myself like six times per day, like, that adds up over time, right? Um, or you have to go and say, okay, maybe I should use methods that aren't going to go through first pass metabolism. So I try to like, you know, like extend it in my, my body a little bit. Um, those kind of things from the, those DNA tests are really helpful in determining also non-responders. Like people will say, I use THC, it's not working, you know, or I use CBD and it's not working. Like there's information in there that you can work with an expert and sort of figure out, okay, you know what? 
your body does not break it down edibles. Like, and here's the reason why. So just stop it with the edibles. Let's go like to inhalation only. Like I've had patients that have been so scared to smoke, but it turns out like they can't absorb THC unless they smoke. So it's just like those kind of little nuggets in there are really helpful. Um, it's also helpful for determining, you know, is it safe for you to take this medication and this other one based on those liver enzymes and things like that? When you have really complex patients, um, they're say cancer patients on like 16 different drugs and cannabis. It's like, is this right? You know, let's dive deeper in here. Um, you know, a lot of people think cannabis is easy, right? Like for some people it is right. Like you're healthy, you're an athlete. You're like, okay, like which strain should I use? Like, you just go for which one makes you feel best. And like, that's it. A lot of patients are sick though. And a lot of patients for them, the cannabis experience doesn't go as easily as they thought, you know, oh my goodness, cannabis hurt. Like it hurts my back pain or it makes my pelvic pain worse. Or I, I hallucinated or like something like something goes wrong with these patients. And, you know, you can either adjust the route of administration. You can adjust the dosing. You can adjust the different cannabinoids. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do, um, but having the most information, uh, you know, at your fingertips is so important because, you know, it's all data, right? You can't adjust any of the variables if you don't know what's going on. And for most patients, when they start off, they can't even tell you what dose they were using, you know, never mind like, hey, here's my DNA report. Like, they're just like, I don't even know what bottle I have. I was like, did you use THC, CBD? I don't know. It's this bottle. Who knows what's on there? And I'm like, oh gosh, you know, so it's like getting the information is the first part. Um, you know, through really being prepared. But I think that there's a difference between just like sort of like, you know, becoming kind of curious and trying cannabis by yourself. And there's a difference between saying, okay, I'm committed to plant medicine. I'm committed to trying to maybe come off some of my pharmaceuticals um, and going the more natural plant medicine way. And that way, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It does take a lot of thought or, you know, a lot of thought uh, a lot of intention, a lot of, you know, journaling and things like that to figure out what's right, what's not right, um, tapering down medications and things like that. It can be a journey for people that are, are on a lot of medications to transition to cannabis. It can take, you know, up to three months uh, for some patients to really sort of be able to fully do plant medicine instead of prescription drugs. And of course, the journey is different for every patient, you know. Uh, some patients can never come off of their pharmaceutical drugs and that's okay. Um, I want to let everyone know there's no judgment in needing pharmaceuticals. I do believe they can be alternative medicine cannabis, but it can also be complementary medicine, right? It can help make the other medications that you're on, um, you know, more powerful. It can also help reduce risks, um, you know, and provide that harm reduction by reducing the, the total dosage, right? There are patients that are on both opioids, say, and cannabis, and, um, you know, they're able to use lower dosages of opioids because they're on the cannabis and therefore they're less likely to become addicted or to overdose from their opioids. And that's, that's a good thing. Like a lot of times people, especially the clinicians out there would be like, oh my God, you can't be on cannabis and opioids at once, you know? And it turns out it can be a very good thing if you're lowering the total dose of opioids. So there's so much to go into when it comes down to like all this stuff. It's like, I could geek out all day and tell you like all, you know, all the stuff out there. It's, it's been such an exciting field. Yeah, incredibly. And so uh, let's dive into some other of the plant medicines that you work with, Kratom. And you, you had mentioned that you've been seeing some kinds of similarities between Kratom and cannabis. And would you mean to mind to speak to those? Sure. Um, you know, it's funny because I was trained in um, a lot of the, the drugs of so-called drugs of addiction, right? Um, so I knew a lot about the opioid system. I knew a lot about cocaine and methamphetamines. 
uh, cannabis. Um, but it's funny because I wasn't really introduced to Kratom in any of my uh, graduate school experiences. I hadn't even really heard about it until I was a fibromyalgia patient. And actually, it was funny. Um, a friend or it was like a friend of a friend on uh, Facebook was seeing how I was struggling with pain and things like that when I was I was still like on my walker and things like that and was like, hey, have you heard about this? And I'm like, no, I have no idea what this is. It sounds scary. Like, <laughs> I'm going to send you like this baggie of drugs. So I'm like, okay. Um, it literally, when I got this Guinness, uh, when I first tried cream, it had to be like four or five years ago. Um, I literally got a braggy of green powder. Um, so it looked very much plant-based, but it honestly looked like something like green cocaine or something like that. Like it was like literally really sketchy. Um, like an adaptation. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. My <laughs> um, yeah. And so I took it and, you know, it was funny because the first time I took it, I got like sick. I think I took too much or something like that. You know, like there wasn't really any guidelines, just like it was like back in the day with cannabis, right? Right. Like, okay, I have this condition. What do I use it for? Is there anything out there? There's nothing. Okay, good. Like, you're just like hoping that you don't die when you take it, like basically. Um, and with cranium, because it's an opioid based plant medicine, it's like potentially even scary, even though they say, hey, no one dies from this. You know, I wasn't even sure. I was like, well, they say that, but is that really true? I don't know. Like, eh. um, and you know, who knows what's in this bag? Is it lab tested? Like there's, there's nothing. Right. And so, um, I used it. I did find it was good for energy, um, and good for pain in a different way than cannabis is. Cannabis can be very helpful for pain, but it can also make certain um, people sleepy. For me, that's THC is phenomenal for pain, but it's also like knocks me out like a light. So, um, during the day I can't really use it. Um, I use it at night. I use like 20 milligrams at night for pain and spasms and things like that, you know, sleep like a baby, wake up, feel great, but I can't use it during the day. Um, in terms of, you know, pain relief during the day though, I still have fibromyalgia during the day, right? I still have to function, um, as a professional. And for me, I was sort of struggling with that. I'm going, okay, I'm trying CBD. Eh, CBD helps with anxiety, not so much with my pain. Like it's like a Tylenol to me, like, you know, like it's like, okay, I have, I have level 10 pain, you know, what, how do I treat that during the day? And for a while I was just sort of like grinning and bearing it, like trying to like power through it. And, um, you know, that was fine when I was working like a very low amount of hours, but not, uh, you know, working full time with fibromyalgia and stress and things like that. Um, and so Kratom um, is something that I use, you know, um, not daily, um, because again, you want to sort of try to avoid tolerance and things like that it is an opioid. Um, for most people, when they're using it with normal range, they don't, you know, develop addiction and things like that. It's actually lower um, levels uh, than than cannabis addiction. Like there's a lot of stigma and misinformation around Kratom, but I want to talk about the active ingredients in Kratom. So much like the cannabis plant, there's actually uh, many, many ingredients um, in uh, Kratom. And so the primary uh, alkaloids in there, and alkaloid is the chemical that provides those uh, activities. So like, for example, psilocybin is an alkaloid in magic mushrooms. Mitrogynin um, and 7-OH, uh, mitrogynin, also um, 7-hydroxymitrogynin, that's what it's called. Those are the two main alkaloids. And there's all these like other minor alkaloids. So like when you think about cannabis, there's these cannabinoids that provide the activity, right? The pain relief, the stress relief, relaxation, things like that. Kratom also has this like wide spectrum of like major alkaloids and minor alkaloids. And then it has the flavonoids. It has like all these other components to it. So here we have like another um, plant that has these hundreds of compounds. And there's also different strains. There's not just Kratom. There's red vein kratom, there's green vein kratom, white vein kratom. There's different, you know, strains underneath that that have slightly different 
activities. Um, the strains are based on where they're grown as well as how they're dried and prepared. Um, so there's not like thousands of strains like there is with cannabis, but there's still a small variety. Um, and we know that some are more, um, say, stimulating. So like when you think about with cannabis, it's almost like there are, are say, sativa-like uh, uh, kratom strains. And then there's there's indica or like sleepy time, sort of more evening uh, type of strains out there. And so some patients like to mix different ones, like some prefer, you know, a certain strain, some, you know, like to use different ones at different times and things like that. Some people like to take capsules, some people like to take teas. Um, there's all different ways to consume Kratom. But for me, what's exciting as sort of a, um, a molecular psychiatrist is that the activities of these compounds is so cool. So Kratom was thought to only activate the opioid system. It's activating your mu opioid receptors. That's causing the pain relief. It's causing the stress uh, relief. Um, but what we find is actually it has activities all over the place, <laughs> you know, um, because of the flavonoids, because of the alkaloids, um, all these minor um, alkaloids um, haven't really been researched until maybe even the last like year or two, because Kratom was so stigmatized and also not widely acknowledged for its use in the United States. It was sort of thought to be, oh goodness, it was this traditional like sort of Asian medicine uh, that was grown in, uh, you know, Indonesia and Thailand and things like that. And what in reality, it was found there's about like 10 million users in the United States using it. So it is actually something that is important um, that clinicians should be learning about that can be abused, um, but it can also be used properly as medicine. And so my book really goes into, hey, what do all these alkaloids do? What is their potential for medicine? You know, um, are they bad for the brain? Are they good for the brain? Is it bad for the heart? Good for the heart. You know, what are the risks? Um, uh, there's just so many things that you know, I hadn't realized, like I went into, I dived deep into this maybe like four years ago and then was just like shocked with like how much has been researched even in the last three months, uh, you know, with papers that are coming out. So, you know, we're actually learning that some of these substances are metabolized into even stronger alkaloids in our body once they're there. And to me that, that screams like so much, like there's so many similarities to cannabis, right? When you eat a cannabis edible, right? The THC turns into hydroxy THC, which is stronger than THC. And that's why eating an edible is a very different experience than smoking cannabis. Um, in the same way, you know, when we take Kratom, it actually turns into other things um, that are, are really helpful. So it's, it's just sort of interesting that there is this plant here that is really helpful for the opioid system. And I would say like, there's a plant for everything, right? Like some people use uh, kratom, they use CBD, they use the mushrooms, like they use all the different things, but they all have different uses. Like for me, if I'm having a really, really bad pain day, you know, um, I used to have to reach for morphine. I had a prescription for morphine for ovarian cysts, which is something, again, a reproductive related issue that would hit and be like, I have to go to the hospital if I don't get morphine, like that's it. And so for me, that wasn't really fun. Um, you know, I, when I was trying to use cannabis for it, if I used cannabis, I would have to use so much cannabis that like, again, I would be asleep. Okay, I'm going to take a hundred milligram edible and I'll, I'll be gone. Like I won't be able to work or anything. Like for me, that didn't work. For me to be able to replace 100 milligram edible and going immediately to sleep with, say, a cup of kratom tea and still be energized and be able to work and go be able to focus on what I need to do for the day and not having to take the, the entire day off to me was a game changer. And so that's why I'm so excited about the power of this, because we need to stop discriminating and like stigmatizing certain plant medicines going, hey, this works on the opioid system. The opioid epidemic is bad. Like... 
kratom is a bad drug, but cannabis is a good drug because it works on the cannabinoid system. Um, you know, psilocybin mushrooms, oh, they're okay, they're serotonin drugs, but here we have this very stigmatized, you know, plant because it works on the opioid system, but similar to CBD, right? You can't die from CBD, you can't die from THC, you can't die from kratom. It actually doesn't activate the opioid receptors in the same way that morphine, heroin, fentanyl, any of the other opioids do, because it actually doesn't cause a downstream pathway uh, involving beta arrestin. So what this means is that when the kratom uh, alkaloids bind to the, the new opioid receptor, it is not turning on the pathway that's, that causes respiratory depression. And so respiratory depression is stop breathing. That's how people overdose and die from heroin, from morphine, from fentanyl and all these things, they stop breathing. Uh, I wanna be very clear on this, kratom doesn't cause that. So kratom, again, while there are some risks to it, it's not right for everyone, it's probably like the CBD of opioids. You know, and that's a really interesting way to frame it. But we have to start talking about this because, you know, over 10 million people in the United States alone are using it. Um, most people are scared to tell their doctors they're using it because they don't want to be labeled like opioid addicts or things like that. But most people aren't actually using this like in a, an abuse way. They're using this, again, as like, you know, oh, an occasional way to manage stress or manage sleep issues or manage pain. And that should be, you know, um, I would say tolerated and embraced, especially as an alternative to more harmful, uh, you know, medications. If you had the option between taking uh, extended release morphine every day or drinking kratom tea, um, you know, in, in low amounts and you, you're not going to die from your kratom tea, why would you stigmatize that? I think that should be embraced. And so it's just funny because like being in the cannabis industry, being in the mushroom industry, there's all these spaces to do the education, but still like kratom is so taboo. Like it's not like, really welcome at a lot of the tables. Like in the cannabis space, you're not like, hey, let's talk about Kratom. And people are like, Michelle, stop talking about these weird drugs. You know, when <laughs> it's funny, because I'm like, dude, I've been bashing stigmas in plant medicine for how long? And like Kratom is still like the dirty word. And it's uh, it's been interesting to try to, you know, expand people's minds, even within our industry about, hey, you know, it's all about the education. It's, you can misuse anything, right? Um, but educating people on different, you know, uh, methods of consumption, different ways to heal themselves is, is just the key. And having an open mind, I think, too, when we talk about, you know, things in terms of harm reduction, what are we replacing um, something that's more harmful with, with this natural plant substance? We have to remember that because there are people that are addicted to heroin. There are people that are dependent on opioids. There are people who are in chronic pain like that will need opioid stimulation for the rest of their life because of, you know, a back injury or some other thing. And so we always have to keep in mind that, you know, our, I think, bias against certain things shouldn't impact uh, patients' access to medicine. And I know I've seen Kratom at the same sort of gas stations that are selling maybe not the most reputable brands of CBD. Do you have any kind of caveats or warnings for people about sourcing the Kratom? Yes. Oh my goodness. So that's a, a, such an important thing, right? Um, when you, whether you're looking for CBD, whether you're looking for Kratom, because these things are not sold at say licensed dispensaries with, you know, um, those regulations that are required for, uh, you know, medical marijuana and adult use, uh, marijuana, uh, dispensaries, uh, uh, 
you're not getting, say, laws that are requiring the same level of testing. So it is important to look for things like lab testing and things like that. They need to be testing for heavy metals, for adulterants. You know, did somebody put spice or synthetic cannabinoids or did somebody put actual opioids in your kratom? Like there's been crazy things that popped up in some of these things where you've maybe heard, say, on the news, somebody died from kratom. Well, it was because something else was mixed in with their kratom. Now, there are actual real companies out there that are lab testing, that are making their kratom in GMP facilities, that are lab testing. There's actually an association called the American Kratom Association, AKA, that actually has sort of, um, they're trying to self-regulate, you know, the different vendors and things like that to establish this as a real supplement. And then there's actual states that have passed uh, laws regulating Kratom. And um, for example, I'm in Nevada, which is one of four or I think now five states that have passed um, the Kratom Consumer Protection Act, uh, which is really important. It, it outlines things like, hey, don't sell this to minors because this is, you know, a psychoactive drug. Um, so don't send it, sell it to people that are under 21 or 18. Also, you need to provide a nutrition label and lab testing. How much mitridinine is in your um, you know, in your product. And that's important because sometimes people will add extra of the, the uh, ingredient and sort of like, uh, because they didn't process it right. And so they're trying to like dope their own product by like adding in like more, more product. And it's funny because we don't think of that as like doping in THC when somebody is like enhanced their product. They're like, we put extra THC in this extract. Um, but in, um, in the Kratom world, that's actually frowned on by uh, regulatory bodies because people might have more of an adverse reaction because they're assuming like they're getting regular kratom tea and if they're getting like four times as much in there they might be sick you know again you can get nausea and vomiting like there are side effects to taking too much kratom death isn't going to be one of them but you can get very ill if you take too much um so it's important to know you know is my product safe is there the expected amount in my product is it an old product maybe it's old and there's no active product in it anymore you know you've just wasted your money like that that's a kind of important stuff to look for so when you know you're shopping, you probably shouldn't get your drugs, <laughs> whether they're the legal kind or not. Uh, you shouldn't get them at the gas station. You should go online. You should look um, at your your vendor and make sure you're using something that's safe. Um, that's something that's reputable. Um, and again, you know, it's it's something that comes from the earth, right? We know from the hemp plants that CBD, you know, oil can have heavy metals because the plants pull up things that are in the ground where they're grown. Um, in the same case, a lot of uh, kratom, it's not grown in the United States because we don't have the tropical uh, climate for it. So it's coming from different countries and, you know, we can't always control, hey, how did they uh, grow this? How did they process it? You know, we know that um, a lot of substances from some other countries sometimes are processed in a way that's like not ideal and has contaminants. And so um, it's really important to make sure that, um, you know, they are safe. And so I actually started at Kratom, a company for women um, or therapeutics, just because there wasn't a lot out there that it made me feel like all warm and fuzzy. Like I'm like, is this sketchy? Is this safe? Um, so um, I don't have my own Kratom farm or anything. And yet I'm trying to actually get uh, direct from um, a farm that, that I do know the owners with. Uh, but I do get it from a supplier that has lab tested and everything else like that, um, because I think it's so important that, you know, if I'm trying to cl- uh, train the health coaches and the clinicians out there and the cannabis industry and other people about the safety and health benefits and potential medical uses of Kratom, you know, if you don't have a product that you can stand by that you can trust, you know, it's it's really hard. And I think we saw that a lot with cannabis. I would talk to doctors and they'll be like, yeah, I believe in THC. You know, I can see the science right here. You know, it works. But whose product am I going to tell them to use? You know, there's no clinical research around 
the specific products, you know, um, is this vape pen safe? I don't know. I don't think vape pens are safe. You know, um, where's the research on tinctures, you know, like, um, so a lot of clinicians, um, their biggest concern is that the products that their patients might be getting aren't, aren't quality, aren't safe. And so, you know, I'm excited to sort of provide some of the first education really around the medical uses and start, you know, working and collaborating with other people in the field that are helping patients with this, that are providing products um, that are maybe, you know, I think that the future might be, you know, combining CBD and Kratom and mushrooms into different formulations for different conditions, like sort of mixing all these things together. Um, but I think that we're very much, um, you know, on, again, on the tip of the iceberg of how to how to work with this. And I think the first big questions is getting over the stigma. Uh, will I die from this? Is this safe? Where to buy it from? Um, and you know, I tried to put that together as easy guide for clinicians as patients um, as I could, you know, knowing that I went through this process as a patient myself going, where do I buy this from? What, what is a strain? How much is too much? Can I die from this? Will I get addicted? Like all those things. Um, I think that those are the basic questions, the basic, very basic fear, not even like how much uh, about it is like this, how is the science of how this works? It's like, will this kill me is like the biggest question people have at first, you know, that's what's blocking them from using it. And it's a fair question. And when you start diving into things like mushrooms, you might be asking yourself that same question while under the influence of them. So, Yeah. And I tell people, you know, recreational use is so different from uh, medicinal use. And I'm, I'm not going to pretend like there are people that are like, I like to get high using Kratom. There are people that like to get high using heroin, you know, like everyone can use these substances. Again, I believe in grown up use, you know, I'm not here promoting anyone using any drug recreationally, but obviously that's a choice that adults can make. But I would say that I do not recommend people use uh, Kratom recreationally with some of the other drugs recreationally. I do think that is actually how people overdose is because, hey, if you use alcohol and Kratom, you might be causing respiratory depression because these substances interact differently when they're there together in your body than when they are separately. So I would say, you know, as for recreational use, don't combine for medical use, obviously, drinking is never good with any of these type of, of drugs, whether they're Xanax, whether they're opioids and things like that. So, you know, it's trying to, you know, do the harm reduction way. But I think for a medical patient, um, they shouldn't be scared of, say, drinking a uh, cup of tea, you know, every day is not, is not a big deal. Um, you know, for some people, it might be CBD tea. For some people, it might be cannabis tea. For other people, it might be mushroom tea, you know, whatever it is that helps you. I think that Kratom could be an alternative, but it is up to you to, you know, go navigate this, learn for yourself, whether this is something that you feel comfortable with, whether that's something that's helpful for some people, they love it for some people. They're like, this is not for me, but maybe, you know, opioids weren't right for them in any case, you know, that wasn't what their, their system needed um, for their healing. And so I think that it is important though, that we think about these other tools in the toolbox. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, Shining a light on just how dangerous alcohol is and how damaging it is to our body Ooh. is so important. I've heard of a, a there's a California sober movement that I've heard about recently where folks are giving up alcohol because they have access to cannabis and they just don't need that anymore. Whatever kind of um, that loosening that you may have gotten socially from alcohol, you can now use microdosing of cannabis in order to have that same sort of effect. And the the idea of cannabis as medicine goes so far beyond the really hard problems of pain and cancer and things like that, that obviously it works for, but also some of the, the softer social problems that we deal with, the anxieties and the, the light depression even. It has tremendous effects for that as well. 
Yes. You know what? I would say even myself, you know, going through this journey, uh, it's been an incredible year, right? Um, with lockdowns and the COVID stress and seeing the world change, you know, uh, governments change, all these different things. It's been quite a stressful year. You know, for me personally, um, I started to see my alcohol consumption increase, you know, uh, without, you know, some of the the social connections that we used to have. And for me, it was, okay, hey, I noticed this. I'm going to start to consume cannabis uh, a little bit more intentionally and reduce that alcohol uh, consumption, as well as Kratom. Kratom is also known for reducing alcohol uh, cravings, alcohol use. Um, so it's been a nice balance. I actually haven't drank, I think, goodness, and now in two months, uh, which has been great. Um, and it's really important too, because we know that alcohol increases inflammation, increases breast cancer risk. It does a lot of things in, in the body. And especially for women, it seems to turn on genes that are not helpful. Um, for chronic pain patients, you know, it can flare up stress, it can flare up pain, can cause gut issues and things like that. And so, you know, when we think about harm reduction, any plant substance that helps people reduce their alcohol consumption is usually a good thing. Definitely, without a doubt. Yeah, and speaking of the pandemic, I was talking to a friend last, I think, yeah, September, October, and she's a mother of two. And I was like, hey, how's this whole thing going? Now you're a teacher also? She's like, THC is an amazing medicine and it's, it's really helped. And I mean, you work with a lot of mothers and you know, it really is a powerful tool for mothers to have because they don't have to be drunk, you know, smell like alcohol around their kids, but yet they're still able to focus and be present with their kids in a way that a lot of other substances don't allow for. Yes. And I am a real fan of microdosing as well. Um, so a lot of times parents are so scared to consume anything, right? Oh, goodness. Well, I don't want to smoke because maybe they'll, they'll smell like weed and their kid will know, right? Okay, I'm going to wait till they go to sleep. But think about it. You have anxiety during the day. You have you know pain. You have whatever you know that you're dealing with at night is still there during the day, right? And so there are ways to mindfully use cannabis where you're not high and you can absolutely take care of your family, right? And I love microdosing because you can use like 1.5 to 3 milligrams, for some people, even up to 5 milligrams of THC during the day. And really, it's almost like a small dose of Xanax. It's not going to make you out of it, like where you can't function, like, but you can still just deal with the extra stress. And to be honest, I think almost every single mother I talk to, this has been the most stressful year of their life. And so they're all looking for something and they're like, I don't want to go to the doctor and ask for an antidepressant or, you know, anti-anxiety drug, but like, I also don't want to be drinking their day of the day, but like, I can't take it anymore. Like literally everyone's gone to the point where I can't take it anymore. I did not expect to be a professional plus a babysitter. <laughs> I was like, like, you know, they don't have access to some of the, the support systems that they had before. They say their parents watching their kids and things like that. Um, and so, um, for, for moms, you know, I just want to let you know, it's okay. You know, taking like two milligrams of THC during the day, like to, become more level-headed, become more clear to be, help you become a better parent is okay. You know, again, like there's no crisis that's going to be like, oh my goodness, I wasn't able to deal with like whatever my kid needed because I took two milligrams of THC. You're not high, you're fine, <laughs> but it is going to take the edge off, you know? And, and it sounds so silly, especially when you like, if you're in the cannabis industry or things like that, it's so funny because people are, um, you know, they're so used to consuming cannabis, but it's just like, you gotta realize that there's so many people out there that like, they still feel bad about it. They still feel guilt or shame. You know, it's like that thing where it's like, even with alcohol where moms would be like, Hey, I'm going to drink my beer at night and the kids go to sleep and they don't see me. You know, it's like the same thing where people are sneaking around with the cannabis at night, 
um, you know, but not using it during the day. And really THC can be used as a tool to help cope, to help, you know, deal with stress. And again, be able to be present minded because, you know, there is real stress. We have to acknowledge like our life is not the same as it used to be, you know, and it's more challenging. And sometimes if you, you can push through it, right. But like those, those effects of internalizing the stress of not dealing with it and not coping with it sort of come out. And I've seen mothers that are like, Oh my God, all these gut problems or like this pain. And it's like, yeah, that's your stress. And it moved into your body and it's screaming now, like you have to deal with it. So it's not, you're not dealing with your pain. You're actually dealing with your stress that's manifesting as pain now. So, you know, I think that, you know, in order for us to, uh, you know, navigate this new world is funny too, because even as the COVID pandemic is probably like going to wind down by the end of the year, right? Like we have to remember like, hey, we're going to return back to work or we're going to return maybe back to the way things were, but do we want to return to the way things were or do we want to return to a more present, more calm, more like better version of ourselves? And I think that using plant medicine intentionally can help us bring us back to a better world, a like a more present world, a more fulfilling world, a more fulfilling life. And so that's something I want people to think of, you know, as more and more people have embraced CBD and cannabis during lockdown, like don't forget about it, continue to use these things, you know, in your life as, as things return to normal, you know, and we have to destigmatize this use. Um, you know, we have to help educate employers that, you know, mindful cannabis use can actually make people more creative or more functional, more productive at work and things like that. Um, I think a lot of times people are going, okay, I got used to using THC during the day. Like I'm creative, I'm writing, I'm doing my like awesome thing. And then like, some people are actually even scared about like going back to work. They're like, oh no, my boss, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doing the THC. And you're like, no, we have to, um, you know, face these stigmas um, and, you know, sort of, pave the way for the world that we want to live in and work in and, and, and thrive in. Um, and I think that plant medicine has to be part of all that. We can't push it back to, this is only, we only do this at home and, you know, workplace, this isn't a thing. I think that we have to think about mindful plant medicine um, as part of our lives um, at every part. I love that. That's beautiful. So with that, I'm going to move right into our last question here. We've blown past the hour, which is awesome. It's so fun. This has been a really great conversation. And uh, so what is the one thing that you would really love to see change right now in the cannabis industry? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, legalization uh, would be the big thing. But um, as a patient myself, I am very frustrated that you can only get some products in some states. Uh, because of the issues with shipping or having to manufacture your cannabis into the product by state by state, and you're not allowed to ship. For example, uh, as someone with palliative pain, I use cannabis vaginal suppositories. Uh, they're only available in California and in Colorado. I make them myself at home because they're not sold in dispensaries, but why aren't they sold in dispensaries? Why do I have to tell patients you have to go drive to another state if you want to buy them yourselves and then drive it back, which is technically illegal. I want to see more products for women in every single state. Um, it shouldn't be, it really shouldn't be only two states out of 50 have the products you need to treat your disease. That, that would really help everything a lot. Yeah, especially it's so arcane. The whole west part of this country has legal cannabis and you can't drive over the state lines with it. It seems absurd. Yes. And it, I mean, it makes us our less so challenging as, as cannabis coaches. You have to look up you're like, okay, 
where are you? What is your city? Which products are available to you? It's it's such an archaic process. It's almost like being a travel agent back in the day. <laughs> it's like it's like you need a navigator, right? It's like as a patient, you're like, okay, I saw this thing about Foria. Well, you live in Kansas, so good luck. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> that's what I have to do with every day. I'm like, I'm sorry, but like, I literally talked to a patient, goodness, yesterday in New York, and. Uh, she was all excited about vaginal suppositories. I was like, girl, they are they have been out in your state for two years. They have not been in stock. So you have to go make them or have somebody ship them to you or whatever that is. But that person is not going to be me. But uh, yeah, those are your options. And the people do not want to hear, I have to go make <laughs> like vagina popsicles or something yeah. like that. It's hilarious. <laughs> like, that's my job. I'm like, hey, guys, I'm going to teach you how to make popsicles. <laughs> so um, with that, please don't make me ever have to say but again, just make them in the dispensaries. Thanks. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll take that. I love it. That's a really fun way to end this. Michelle, it's been fantastic. What a, uh, Just a wealth of knowledge. You should see my list of what I had and we covered half of it, which is okay. Maybe we can bring you back on for part two and we can dive into some more things that you're also an expert on because there's so much. Thank you. Well, it was such a fun conversation and I hope it helps somebody, um, especially the part with Kratom. You can't be a cannabis and a Kratom user. Both are okay. <laughs> well, if you've made it this far, then you definitely know that Dr. Ross is full of energy and full of wisdom. And if you are looking to start or continue your experience on a healing journey with plant medicines, be it cannabis or kratom or even mushrooms, I highly recommend that you reach out to Dr. Ross and see how she can help you because she has helped dozens upon dozens of people with their own health journeys and I'm sure that she could help you as well. I will have all of her information in the show notes for you to access it easily. Check out her site, check out her books, see what she's up to because it's a lot and she's amazing as you well know because you've listened this far and if you haven't already go over to wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast and leave a rating for the show it really helps get more ears on this show and helps to improve the industry in general the more people that know more about medical cannabis the better off all of us are because it can get federally changed i really believe this and we can do it together so until next time my friends please be healthy and enjoy yourselves this edge of cannabis medicine podcast is copyright em2p2 inc 2020 all rights reserved Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening. <laughs>